Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. First Bible readings from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 5 to 15, and that's on page 555. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and melt in fear before Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore the Lord is bringing up against it the mighty flood waters of the river, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will rise above all its channels and overflow all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah as a flood and pouring over it will reach up to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Band together, you peoples, and be dismayed. Listen, all you far countries. Gird yourself and be dismayed. Gird yourself and be dismayed. Take counsel together, but it shall be brought to naught. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The Lord spoke thus to me while his hand was strong upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what it fears, or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against. For both houses of Israel, he will become a rock one stumbles over, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken." Second Bible readings from Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23, and that's on page 924 of the Pew Bibles. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat, it, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. The faith you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. But those who have doubts are condemned if they eat because they do not act from faith. But whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. I'm glad that uh, Elliot's become an Anglican, although that normally means going to church, so I'm not sure where he is tonight. (laughs) Just thought I'd put that out there. Uh, He may regret that decision, though, given what's been happening at the Bishop's Synod uh, during the course of this week. Have you heard about what's going on there? Um, uh, two things to let you know about that. Uh, one, nothing's changed. Nothing changed at the Synod this week. 
Okay, so just to be clear about that, and there's a really great letter that our Archbishop has written to the churches, and so I'll publish that on Thursday in our, as a link in our e-newsletter. Uh, nothing's changed, don't panic, uh, they don't have any power, and they didn't change anything anyway. So that's the first thing. And secondly, um, someone's asked whether it might be useful for us to have some kind of seminar to talk about the question that was raised there, which is the, the issue, of course, of human sexuality and, and marriage, uh, and in particular, how to talk with unbelieving friends or family members because it's just so much in the news and, the, you know, and so on. And so if you're interested in that kind of a thing, then do grab me after the service and let me know, okay? But you'll, you'll get some, uh, as I say, a good letter from uh, the Archbishop just explaining the fact that nothing has changed. Actually, that's a good, poly- good motto for the Anglican Church. <laughs> nothing, cha- no, no, quite. Uh, we live in a rights-saturated world um, at so many levels, whether it's school children and the future of the planet, or whether it's real wage increases, or whether it's the need for other people to be aware of their impact on me and not to trigger me. That's a, that's a very important word now. Uh, rights are the grammar and syntax of how we function as a society. Uh, that hasn't always been the case. For many years, the question of duty was much more culturally central than the question of rights for queen and country. Some people said they would do their duty, and many people felt that. But the days of duties are gone, and now we live in the realm of rights. Now, one of the really important things about rights is that rights impose obligations on others. Okay, just want you to kind of run with me here a little bit. If I have a right to free speech, then that means that others have an obligation to to refrain, to not prevent me from expressing myself. I have a right to free speech, so you've got to not do something. You've got to not prevent me from expressing myself. If I have the right to non-discrimination, that means you have the obligation to refrain from discriminating against me if you're selling me something. Now, notice that those two examples, those two rights, the right to free speech and the right to non-discrimination, are what are called negative rights or negative freedoms in the sense that the obligations they impose on others are negative obligations. That is, the obligation to not do something, to not interfere with me. But think about different rights. Uh, Say, the right to a free, high-quality education. Uh, That's what's called a positive right. A positive right in the sense that the obligation that goes with that right, there's still an obligation, and the obligation this time is a positive obligation, that is the obligation to do something. In this case, presumably, it's the uh, obligation to provide me an education, and, and typically the way these positive rights work out is that it's the government's job to do that. Uh, but in both cases, my rights mean your obligations, and your rights mean my obligations. That's what knits us together as a community. Now, one of the things that goes with rights and obligations uh, is victimhood, and with a much greater focus on rights, uh, so the experience of and the conversation about being a victim is also much more prevalent. Being victimised is when your rights are ignored or trampled on, Uh, and you can see that if rights expand beyond the fundamental negative rights to more and more positive rights, then at the same time, there'll be more and more victims those whose rights are not being adequately fulfilled. There's lots that's really good about this focus on rights. At at the very centre of love, remember just in last chapter, chapter 13, 
the Apostle Paul has, has foregrounded love in a, in a kind of absolute way. He says, owe no one anything except the debt of love. Like, it's all about love. Love is everything, he says. And right at the center of love is being aware of the way that the things you do and say impact on others. That is, to respect their rights. And actually, to go way beyond their rights. So there's lots that's good about this focus on rights, and yet, and yet at the same time, the New Testament often goes in a quite different direction. The issue of rights actually turns out not to be new at all. It didn't come into being with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the middle of the 20th century. We see the issue of rights being wrestled with in the first churches. And what's so interesting is that the regular direction of the New Testament is to not insist on your rights, but to voluntarily give up your rights for the sake of others and not to demand of others, therefore, that they fulfill their obligations to you, but voluntarily restricting your freedoms and not making demands of others even when you have the right. And that makes the New Testament radically counterculture. Radically counterculture. It's exactly what we see here in the second half of Romans chapter 14. And so we're just going to have two very brief headings, the rights in Rome, and then secondly, what could possibly undergird the instruction that the apostle gives here, to give up your rights. So firstly, rights in Rome, and a quick recap on the difficulties amongst the fellowship of believers in Rome. You get a sense of it in the first verse of this section, chapter uh, 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. Uh, the first half of uh, chapter 14 looks at the question of judgment. We saw that last week. But we move to something new here. It's actually a shift in the direction, um, which is to putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another. Okay, it's the next step of the argument. And it's really important to understand both what putting a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another person is and what it is not. Firstly, what, stumbling, what putting a stumbling block in the way of another person is not is behaving or speaking in such a way that they get upset at you because they think you've done something wrong or dishonoring to God or sinful, right? You do something and someone gets upset at you, you haven't put a stumbling block in their way. That's not what this passage is talking about at all. You know what that's called? That's called a disagreement. It's okay for Christians to have different points of view. There's no stumbling here. There's just difference. You think it's okay to do something. They think it's not okay to do something. So when you do it, thinking that it's okay, they disagree with you and maybe they're even upset by you. But that's not putting a stumbling block in someone else's way. Just because someone's upset with you doesn't mean you put a stumbling block in their way. Really important to see that. Just because you're upset with someone doesn't mean they put a stumbling block in your way. Don't use that on them. Everyone understand? That's what stumbling is not. Now let me tell you what stumbling is. What stumbling is, is other people being influenced by you and doing something that they themselves think is actually wrong and so becoming upset at themselves. Okay? Do you see the difference here? Causing someone to stumble 
putting a stumbling block in someone's way means to cause them to sin against their conscience. To do something wrong, not just because they've succumbed to a temptation, but quite specifically because you have tempted them by doing that thing in front of them. Uh, We have a bit of an old-fashioned phrase that captures this, which is uh, to lead someone astray. You know that phrase, to lead someone astray? To act in such a way that you do something that you think is right okay and right and okay, but someone else doesn't think that it's right and okay, but because you do it, they follow you in it. They do it too, and they sin against their conscience. And you can see the difference, can't you? You you haven't caused someone to stumble when they become upset at you. You've caused them to stumble when they become upset at themselves because they're convicted of their sin, because they've sinned against their conscience. And that's what's happening in Rome. You remember in Rome, there were these Jewish believers in Jesus. They put their faith in their crucified and risen Lord, and at the same time, they think that they need to keep the old covenant Jewish Torah law about Sabbaths and food laws to do with kosher meat and drink as part of their obedience to Jesus. That's what they think, as part of their obedience to Jesus. That's their conscience. It's not just cultural. They really, really mean it. It's serious to them. Uh, Paul calls them weak in faith, weak in the sense that they haven't embraced the full freedom that they have in Christ, which is freedom from the old covenant law. Now, what's, what's really interesting is that Paul is totally clear that they are just wrong about that, these Jewish Christians. He, see how he puts it in verse 14, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing in itself is unclean. He knows that whether meat has blood in it or not, whether it was slaughtered in the temple next door or the abattoirs down the road, whether Saturday is a day of work or a day of rest and so on, makes no difference to Jesus whatsoever. It's all clean to him. He said, all foods are clean. For the Gentile Christians and for the Apostle Paul, pork, shrimp, lobster, rabbit, camel, even bats. Actually, they're just the Old Testament Levitical prohibitions on animals. I don't know if you've eaten bat recently, but if you want to, knock yourself out. Go eat some bat. It's all on the menu. And the apostle says, that's true. But do you notice how he finishes the verse? But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Here's a really important principle. Your conscience is your conscience. And you have to live within the limits of your conscience. If you think something is wrong, although actually the word think uh, is, is probably a, the wrong word there. It's not a good word. It's more, it's deeper than think. It, it, it's if the reality of that profoundly important voice of your soul is that something is wrong, because that's where you feel your conscience in your soul. Then it really is wrong for you. It's wrong subjectively, even if it's not wrong objectively. Sabbaths, um, kosher food, perhaps uh, in our days uh, smoking or drinking alcohol in moderation, if these things are matters of conscience for you, then you have to make sure that you live within the limits of your conscience. As the Apostle sums it up at the end of the, the, the chapter, he says, whatever does not proceed from faith, well, that is sin. Now, notice a couple of things about this um, 
idea of conscience. Firstly, it doesn't work the other way. Okay, if, if, if here's where freedom is and your conscience is in here, you've got to live in here, that's true, but it doesn't work the other way. If this is what is right and wrong and your conscience is out here, that doesn't mean you can do that stuff. Okay, I just want to make that very clear. You might think that robbing banks is okay. You know, I mean, why should the Commonwealth Bank and, and the Westpac Bank make all those billions of dollars? They're ripping us off and we should get some of that money and I just think, take. nope, it's just, it's wrong. I don't care what your conscience is at that point. You just can't do it. Okay, so it, you can be more restrictive than God's will. You can't be less restrictive than God's will. It's like a ratchet. It only goes in one direction. And at the same time, there is a second thing which you might call educating your conscience. Uh, all of us change our minds, or as I say, more accurately, change our hearts about these sorts of things. Sometimes we go more restrictive and increase the range of our conscience. I know some people who are now teetotalers and never drink alcohol and regard it as wrong for themselves who weren't earlier in life because they're just so convicted about the horrendous impact that alcohol has on our society in the massive abuse uh, and destruction that it causes. So they used to think something was okay, now they think it's wrong for them. At the same time, we can educate our consciences in the other direction, becoming less restrictive. You might go from thinking that Smoking is wrong to just thinking that it's dumb. Well, that's educating your conscience. Actually, either way, it's educating your conscience. And what's really important to notice is that Paul doesn't do that here. He doesn't go down that track here of educating the conscience of the Jewish Christians with their scruples. He's profoundly concerned for them, and in particular for the terrible possibility that the strong in conscience, the Gentile non-Jewish Christians in Rome, might lead their Jewish Christian sisters and brothers astray. That's his concern. That they will lead their Jewish Christian brethren to act against their consciences, to lead them into sin. And if you read the paragraph through, look at the different ways that Paul describes what that would be. It, it's, it's, he says it's like putting a stumbling block in their way. Now, um, none of you really are this age, but there, there's a certain age that you get to when instead of falling, you have a fall. Okay, you're familiar with this? So there are certain, and it's about, whatever it is, it's one year older than I am now. Okay, so I'm still, when I fall, I just fall. And I think I'll do that till I'm about 93. Uh, but there are older people than me who don't just fall, they have a fall. Okay, and when you have a fall, it's really bad because you break things and it's, it's bad. And so, so that's what it is to cause someone to stumble. It's like going up to a really old person, 57 or something like that, and, and, and there they are walking along, and you walk along beside them, and you stick your leg out in front of them, so the boom, down they go, they have a fall. And there's broken hips and collarbones, and there's mess, and it's, it's... That's what you're doing spiritually when you cause someone to sin against their conscience. Do you see that? It would be to injure them, the apostle says. That's another word that he uses. It would be to cause the ruin of them. It would be to have your good, your freedom, you're free to eat what you want to eat, actually become an evil. It would be something as horrendous, listen to this, as you destroying the work of God, ruining someone for whom Christ died. causing them to condemn themselves. Do you see how serious an issue this is for the apostle? And, and so he says something that is 
profoundly countercultural, that is seriously radical for us. Here is the Christian way. Ready? Give up your rights. You won't hear that on any podcast anytime soon. You're not going to read that in any newspaper. This is as as weird and freaky. You you think that you know we think marriage is a man and a woman, and that's this is that's nothing compared to this. Give up your rights. No one gives up their rights. The apostle says, "Give up your rights for the sake of others, when that is what walking in love requires." Sure, O Gentile Christians in Rome, nothing is unclean in itself. Sure, meat is meat, days are days, and they don't have any spiritual significance to them whatsoever. Sure, you have the right to eat all the barbecues you want and work all the days you want. Yep, that is your absolute right. And what's more, I agree with you, says the Apostle Paul, 100%. And you know what? That is not the end of the issue. You've still got more thinking to do. You've still got more work to do. Your rights are not the end of the issue. Because then there is a further, higher priority question to ask, which is, is there something even more important that rights than rights at stake here? Is love at stake here? And when that is the case, when to insist on your rights will damage another sister or brother in Christ for whom he died, then your rights come a very, very distant second place to love. And the call on you is to voluntarily give up your rights, to actually not insist on them because there's something that you know is more important than your rights. There's love. Now, I need to add three brief points of clarification to this. Firstly, On the one hand, this is not talking about someone else taking your rights away from you and saying, you know what, you should just put up with that. Let people take your rights away from you. And especially, this is not talking about the government taking your rights away from you, say, for schools to be able to employ people who align with the values of the school. Having your rights taken away from you is coercion. And what Paul is talking about here is the opposite of coercion. It's voluntary. It's perfectly good to insist on your rights when someone else is trying to coerce you. Okay, so that's the first point of clarification. Second point of clarification. This is talking about personal relationships. This is not talking about institutional relationships or the way people interact with institutions. What I mean is this. I was surprised to find out that this text is used in the question of whether women should preach to mixed congregations. I'd never heard that before. It never occurred to me to think about that. But apparently, has anyone heard of that? Really? Weird. And the, the, the argument goes like this, you know, I think it's sinful for women to preach to a mixed congregation and therefore the church shouldn't do that because that would be to cause me to sin. Now, it's not clear that it's causing you to sin anyway, so that's, it just seems to be a misapplication. But either way, that's not the point. The point is that this is about personal relationships one-to-one Whereas that's about an institutional relationship. Let me give you a parallel example. You might think that it's uh, wrong to baptise babies. Well, the church is going to make a decision one way or the other. You've got to baptise people, Jesus said to do it, and either you baptise babies or you don't. And the church is just going to make it, the institution that is, is just going to make a decision which one to do. And if you think that it's wrong to baptise babies, you know what you do? You go join a Baptist church. That's what you do. 
it's not that institutions are required to accommodate themselves to the consciences of individuals. That's not what's on view here. The policy and practice, of, I say this often, I said this twice today, two people looked at me like I was crazy. Uh, I hope you know this, the policy and practice of the Anglican Church of Sydney has been for 50 years or more, archbishop after archbishop, to ordain women to be deacons and to license them to preach. And if, if some loud voices have made it, you think that that's not what the Anglican Church does, well, you've been hoodwinked. That's clear. That's why we do it, because we think that's the best and most faithful way to deal with the Bible. I agree. So, firstly, this is not talking about someone coercing your rights away from you. Secondly, it's not talking about the relationship between institutions and individuals. It's a personal relationship. And thirdly, it's not about when you've been wronged. When someone has acted against you and damaged you, then what ought to happen next is not that you give up your right to ask for them to make an apology or to set things uh, right again and so on. No, no, no. If someone has wronged you and damaged you, then what ought to happen next is that they acknowledge the wrong that they've done and apologise, and if it's some terrible criminal thing, then they ought to have the full due legal penalty exercised against them. Now, this, this is actually, those are special circumstances. This is the far more common situation of personal relationships in the ordinary, everyday business of life. When you have the rights of a full and free conscience, but you modulate that, you restrict that for the sake of others in order to love others, and in particular, in the situation in Rome, to not lead others into what they would experience as sin. And modulating your rights for the sake of love, that's everywhere in your life. That's not just the occasional moment of terrible wrong things have been done or institutional decisions that get made or someone else taking your rights away from you and coercing you. That's all the time. Tonight, I mean, as soon as you even start relating to each other, it'll be on. What are you going to do with your rights? Your rights to make decisions about your resources, your time and your energy and your focus and your money and your capacity and who you sit with and what you say and what language you use and how you talk and how sort of pushy you are with your personality and all of that. It's constant, this question. What are you doing with your rights? And the apostle says, the way of love trumps your rights. Give them up constantly, ceaselessly, to walk in love. Do you see why this is a pretty important passage? Imagine a community that did that. Do you not think that that would be awesome? That we were so concerned with love that we we're less interested in our own rights? What on earth could get us to do that? What could possibly motivate a community of people to live that way? Surely life is about the full use and expression of my freedoms and rights. Well, listen to the reason that the Apostle gives. He says it in verse 17, where he just really hones in on the heart of this issue. And he says, for, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace 
and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's very rare for the apostle to actually use this phrase, the kingdom of God. Normally, he speaks about the reality of that Jesus is Lord, which is almost the same thing, in that the lordship of Jesus is about the one who is the king, rather than the king himself. But here he says that the reason that it makes sense to give up your rights for the sake of walking in love is because of the character of the kingdom itself. This is the realm, he says, that you live in. Your believer in Christ, he says, this is the air that you now breathe with spirit-recreated lungs. This is the culture you inhabit. This is your citizenship. Sure, you're part of, you know, woke 21st century Sydney. Yes, that's true, but that's your secondary citizenship. Your primary citizenship is the kingdom of God. That's what you're really a citizen of, and this is your citizenship, your culture. This is its texture. It's not about food and drink. In other words, it's not about the insistence of your rights to eat the full extent of your educated conscience. Rather, the character of the kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, well, the kingdom of God, the, the realm, the space, the, the, the community where God's will and ways are welcomed and embraced is first of all righteousness. That is the righteousness that Jesus has won for us. That great triumphant reality that by the mighty cross of Christ and resurrection from the dead, in him we stand right with God. That we stand clean and clear and welcomed and wanted. And that precisely because we have that righteous standing with God, we have that righteous standing with other, with each other. We're put right with each other. With each other we're clean and clear and welcome and wanted. Which means, second, you can see how it follows right on from that, that the kingdom of God is peace. The kingdom of God is righteousness and it's peace because it's peace between us and God and therefore peace between one another. And this is not the peace of disinterest and disengagement, the, you know, the, the peace which is you do your thing, I'll do my thing and as long as we don't interfere with each other, all is well. The way that we have peace is by maximising indifference towards each other. That's not community. Peace is a far more rich full, deep connection that includes all the spikiness and the differences and the challenges of being up close to other people whose consciences differ from yours. And yet despite that and actually in that and even because of that, being gloriously peaceable with one another, constantly giving up our rights and demands on others for the sake of love. And when the righteousness of the kingdom flows into that kind of positive, connected, mutually sacrificial peace, then what results is the joy in the Holy Spirit. Deep, real, hard-won joy. Not, not the superficial joy of keeping your distance and closing off your life from others, making sure that you have little to do with them and so no one gets upset. That's not joy. That's mere formality. Now, this is the joy that comes from a community that has its difference and difficulties and knows that there are disagreements and hurts, and yet in the grace of God, because of the kingdom of God, triumphs over that and enables all of those things to find their rightful secondary place. And the, the apostle says, that's a kingdom of God, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and he says, don't mess with it. Don't mess with the kingdom of God. And especially for the sake of your rights, especially for the sake of feeling free to insist on your way when you can, when you can and you are in the right, don't mess with the mutual experience of the kingdom of God. Instead, verse 19, 
let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Of course. Of course. You see, here's the thing. Here's why the kingdom of God is not food and drink. Here's why the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus, the righteous one, took on our unrighteousness. He took our unrighteousness into himself and became sin itself in himself so that we can have eternal and infinite righteousness. So that we can have that standing with God that can never be eroded or erased, not even by our sin. And as that righteousness fills you and satisfies you and floods you, you see, you will just not need to insist on your rights. You'll have a greater freedom of movement and agility in life than to default to that all the time. You'll have a higher priority in your life. You'll be more interested in others' joy than in your rights. And at the same time, Jesus gave up eternal peace, the peace that he enjoyed with the Father from before the creation of the world, and he entered into deadly conflict with sin and death and the devil. On our behalf, he fought our fight for us. He went into battle for us and he overcame so that we can have that eternal and infinite peace, a peace that can never be taken from us. And as that peace fills you, you don't need to insist on your rights. You're more interested in the well-being of the other. And in the same way, Jesus gave up his joy for the agony of dereliction so that we might never be forsaken by the Father but have eternal and infinite joy. And as that joy in the Holy Spirit fills you, you get the point? You don't need to insist on your rights. You'll more and more find it normal and natural to voluntarily give up your rights, to not insist on your own way, to put it to one side for the sake of walking in love. And the promise and confidence in this path is beautiful. Verse 18, the one who thus serves Christ. You serve Christ like that? The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. You love God and you love your neighbour like this. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we lift our hearts to you in worship and praise. For you have won for us righteousness and peace. And join the Holy Spirit by your own great sacrifice. Fill us more and more, we pray. So that we can be that most unusual, weirdest of people. People who do not insist on our rights. But walk in love. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.